0: This morning we continue our hospitality uh, sermon series, and just to give you a forewarning, uh, although I originally said six messages on hospitality uh, in a recent message, I actually ended up preaching pretty much two of the messages I had planned in one sermon, and so uh, you are being spared by the Lord uh, one extra message on hospitality, so you can give thanks to God for that later, not, not right now. But... Um, we will end up having five sermons in this series, so we'll have this one, and the next week we'll finish up with our final sermon. But today I want to consider with you uh, hospitality as what uh, now deceased Pastor Tim Keller once called the front porch of the gospel. So we're going to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter two, and I'll also read a verse from chapter five, but just a couple of verses from Acts two and one verse from. Chapter 5 this morning, we consider hospitality as a means of evangelism, a means of witnessing to people who don't know Christ, who don't know Jesus, a message I've entitled, The Gospel Front Porch. So Acts chapter 2, let's look at verses 46 and 47, and then we'll turn over to Acts 5 verse 42. Uh, And we'll have a few other verses we'll reference throughout, but these will be the primary verses we'll consider this morning. So let's hear now the word of the living God, Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And then Acts chapter five, verse 42, speaking of the apostles and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God now had his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word among us. Well, if we were going to start a new church, um, what are some of the things we think we would need? We don't need to answer that out loud, but just just think about that in your own mind for a second. If we were going to start a new church, what are some of the prerequisites that would be sort of non-negotiables that we need to start a new church in this country? You might think, well, we need a pastor, right? We would need some kind of a minister to come and preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. Uh, We'd probably need sort of a starting fund of money, right? We would need uh, a fund set aside to help get things going while we tried to reach new people. Many Americans would say uh, you need a building. Even if it's not a building of your own, you need some place to meet as a church, some special place set aside for your services on Sunday. In fact, many people in our country believe that Uh, Until you have your own building, you're effectively not actually a real church. I remember one conversation I had several years ago uh, with a person in a coffee shop, and I was talking about the time we met at the funeral home, and this guy sounded at least intrigued by our our mission and what we were trying to do, and he said, well, I tell you what, uh, when you get a real church, maybe then I'll, I'll come check you out. Right? When you're not meeting in a funeral home, maybe then I'll come and, and worship with you. When you get a real church, right? that's the mentality that many in the United States have today. Uh, effectively, you're not a real church until you've got your corner lot with a building on it and a sign out front. Right? Kind of halfway there, we've got our own sign, but it's not technically our own building. We don't own it, at least. We rent it from the Methodists here. We're grateful for them having us. But I think it would surprise many American Christians to learn that for the first three centuries of church history, that mentality would have sounded ridiculous to any Christian in the world. For the first 300 years of church history, from the apostles until the time of Constantine, there were no church buildings, that didn't exist. Even the concept of having a distinct building set apart for what we're doing today would would have sounded somewhat ridiculous to the Christians. Now, of course, when Constantine became a Christian and uh, made Christianity an officially tolerated religion of the Roman Empire, then uh, they started procuring church buildings for their worship services because they needed them at that point. Their gatherings were getting so big with so many people interested in the gospel that they needed the larger meeting space. But For the longest time, longer time than our country's been in existence, Christians met and grew and flourished with no church buildings, no steeples, no crosses up top, and in fact not only did they grow in that time, but they ended up completely taking over the Roman Empire to the point where uh, not only was Christianity a tolerated religion, but uh, at one point it became the official imperial religion, replacing the paganism of Rome that had come before it. So how did this movement of people go from being a couple hundred disciples hanging out in Jerusalem to 300 years later, completely consuming the most powerful empire that the world has ever known, in many ways, how did they do it? Well, we know that they didn't have church buildings, but they did use their homes. They used their homes. They used their houses, places they lived. We see this all throughout the book of Acts, from start to finish. Uh, The verses we read there, Acts 2, verse 46, breaking bread from house to house. Acts 5, verse 42, teaching in every house, preaching that Jesus was the Christ. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, it happened as the Christians were gathered in somebody's home. The conversion of Cornelius, the conversion of many Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 16, happens in the homes of those people. And in fact, if you turned over, and in fact, I will ask you to turn over there, just so you know I'm not telling tales here, but go to the very end of the book of Acts, the last two verses, Acts chapter 28, Verse 30 and verse 31. Acts 28, verse 30. The apostle Paul, by this point, has gotten to Rome. He's been arrested, and he's going to stand trial before Caesar. And this is how the book of Acts ends. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. He's under house arrest. And received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence no one forbidding him. All throughout the book of Acts, the first 40-so years of church history, all throughout the book, it is a story that takes place primarily in people's homes. There are no church buildings, and that doesn't change for another 250 years after the end of this book. Now, of course, it's, it's not the case that once the church was tolerated and could get their own church buildings, it's not like the Holy Spirit quit moving at that point. Jesus promised to be with his people wherever they gathered, uh, wherever two or three were gathered in his name, whether that's in somebody's home or in a church building like we have this morning. Jesus is here today just as much as he was in the home churches of the first 300 years of the Christian faith. But I, I think it's so fascinating to me and probably perplexing to the American mindset That for 300 years, the church grows and flourishes and reaches and consumes an empire with no buildings. Just meeting in people's homes. Meeting in each other's houses. In fact, archaeological evidence points us to the fact that some wealthy Christians would sort of do home renovation projects. And they'd tear down walls, right? That's the big thing on HGTV. Or at least it was eight years ago when I could watch it. Open concepts, right? Is this a load-bearing wall? Can I get rid of this wall, take it out, create an open concept? They were doing that for the purpose of having a church meet in their home. So they'd tear down a wall and create a big open space so enough people could fit for church services in their home. That's how they did it for 300 years, and it was so effective. What I want to consider with you this morning is why that is the case. Why is it that... The hospitality Christians showed in those 300 years was so effective in spreading the gospel. Why is it that hospitality is such an effective means of reaching people for Christ? Three answers I want to give you. First of all, hospitality helps us develop meaningful relationships. Hospitality helps us develop meaningful relationships. You and I were created in the image and likeness of God. Who is God, according to the Bible? He is a relational being. Three persons, eternally existing in one divine essence, sharing perfectly one divine nature. In in other words, God has never been alone. There's only one God, but in that one God, the Bible teaches us, there are three divine persons who have eternally existed. And they've always had fellowship with each other. And they've always been relating to each other. There's never been a time where the Father and the Son and the Spirit were not united in perfect love and perfect relationship. And so if we're created in the image and likeness of that God, then we also are created for relationship. Here's a little Bible quiz for you, and I, I will ask if you uh, know the answer to, to answer this. What is the first thing in the Bible that God says is not good? For man to be alone. It's exactly right. Genesis 2.18, God creates Adam, and he looks at Adam. This isn't good. A man all by himself even with a relationship with me, but no one else like him, no one else like him to relate to and to help him, this isn't good. I need to create someone who can come in and help him. And that's why Eve is created. God looks at solitary, lone man and says, this is not good. I don't like this. And I'm going to create someone to come in and relate to this man. And have fellowship with this man. So, If God says that you and I living life alone and separate from other people is not good, we don't get to tell God otherwise. We don't get to tell God, no, no, I, you know, I don't actually need other people that much, God. You know, I don't actually need what you say that I need. No, no, that's the definition of sin. The definition of sin is to look at what God says you need and to say, I don't actually need that. I know better than you, God. Statistics are proving this increasingly. A 2003 Columbia University study, so you can imagine how much worse this has probably gotten, but a 2003 study from Columbia University looked at the amount of American families that don't regularly eat dinner together. Just that question of how, how often do you eat dinner together as a family? And at the time, in 2003, 25%, roughly a quarter of the families they surveyed ate dinner together as a family three times or less per week. You've got activities, you've got stuff going on, there's work to do, you've got to stay late at the office. For some reason or another, a quarter of the American families they surveyed ate dinner together three times or less per week. And they also saw that although there may not be a correlation, of course correlation does not indicate causation, but it is interesting, that those families where people are eating dinner together three or less times per week, the teenagers in those families are more likely, much more likely in fact, to report high levels of stress, more likely to do drugs, more likely to do poorly in school, I think even more likely to end up in prison was one of the the statistics they looked at. So there's this correlation. There's this sort of of indication that we we really do need regular time together with people. And if we don't get it, there's pretty dire consequences for us. It's not healthy for you to try and live life without having to relate to other people. It's just not good for you. If it's not good for families, it's not good for any of us. We need meaningful relationships. We need relationships with one another. That's how God made us to exist. And as much as we might try, one of the things you learn from that study, you cannot create meaningful, impactful relationships in an hour or so a week. You can't do it. Those families that try to say, well, you know, we're going to eat dinner. Yeah, we only eat dinner together two times a week, but we'll try to really invest in those two times, right? We'll have quality dinner time on those two nights to make up for the lack of quantity. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, you can't do it that way. God has designed us so that in terms of time investment in relationships, quantity is more important than quality. I can think back to college. And how uh, much deeper I was able to go in some of those relationships than I can in my adult life. How easier it was to make friends at that point and to spend time with people. Of course, you don't have bills to pay and taxes. I mean, I guess you did, but not nearly as much as you do today as an adult. But the reality is that when I had lots of time to invest in relationships, lo and behold, my relationships would flourish and be really enjoyable. I can think back on those times really fondly. I cannot expect to not invest the time needed in a relationship and somehow get a good result. Christian, you can't create meaningful relationships with people in an hour on Sunday morning. You just can't do it. You need more time together. Fathers, you can't just hope that one, two dinners with your kids a week is going to make up for the five dinners missed. I know it's hard. I know your schedule's busy. You got a lot of work on your plate. I'm challenging you. You've got to do everything you can to make sure that as much time as possible is invested in those relationships with your wife and your children. You have to do it. I remember a a former associate pastor had a rule. Pastors, of course, have weird hours, and so he'd get called out of the house at all times, and uh, you'd have... You know, Bible studies at night and things like that, but he still had the rule, at least four nights a week, I'm going to be home for dinner with my family. Now, it tells you how weird a pastor's schedule is. That was a challenge for him sometimes. But that was his determination, at least four nights a week. It's, it's non-negotiable. I have to be home with my wife and kids for dinner. I cannot skip that more than three times a week. Because he knew, quantity over quality. I have to invest the time in it. I can share that as a personal testimony. This is how I came to saving faith. Christian, you may not realize it, but non-Christians, in many sense, they need to have a relationship with you first before they will have a relationship with God. They need a relationship with Christians first before they will come to embrace Christ for themselves. That's what happened uh, for me. I was very thankful that uh, some brother, a brother and a sister in Campus Crusade shared the gospel with me as a freshman in college. And at first I pushed back, I pushed back, but they, they kept inviting me to this stuff. They invested in me. They invited me to events. They had me over uh, to their dorm room to hang out with them. They did Bible studies with me. They, they told me the truth, even though I made fun of them for it and didn't want to hear it. As much as I tried to get away from them, there was something appealing about it and they kept inviting me to stuff and they wanted to spend time with me. And after a couple months of spending time with these Christians and feeling the love that they were showing me, only then was I ready to embrace Christ for myself. I I will say that 99.999% of the time, that is the way it works. People do not normally come to Christ without first having a relationship with Christians. They just don't. Sometimes God does it, God just strikes a person, right? They'll have a story of a Muslim having a dream of Jesus and they wake up converted the next day. That does happen, but it is by far the exception to the rule. The vast majority of the time, the only way that anyone will come to know Jesus is by first having a relationship with you. Hospitality is a way for us to start developing those relationships, not just the relationships within the body of Christ, but relating to people outside the body who don't yet know Jesus. If we want to see people come to Christ, I'll put it this way, if you want to be in a church where we keep having adult baptisms because people actually come to know Jesus for the first time in their life, if you wanna have a church where we are regularly having people come to faith in Christ for the first time, it is not going to happen if we're not willing to have a relationship with them first. It's just not going to happen. I've got to be willing to start having a relationship with them and bringing them to Christ. So first, hospitality helps us develop meaningful relationships. Second of all, hospitality creates space for truth to be heard. Think again about how that biblical hospitality was described for us in Acts chapter 2. In fact, if you have your Bibles still open, which I encourage you to have them open, uh, if you're at at Acts chapter 2, look back at verse 42. Look at what makes up the kind of fellowship that they're having in their homes together. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, says that these new Christians, these 3,000 converts from the day of Pentecost, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of the bread and in prayers. So this is what makes biblical hospitality distinct from sort of -of run-of-the-mill secular hospitality. Biblical hospitality is distinctly Christian. It is not just being friendly. It's not just trying to be neighborly. Uh, It is being neighborly as a Christian with, in some sense, the explicit purpose of sharing Christ with neighbors. You're not sinning if you lead with the fact that you are a follower of Christ and you want other people to also be followers of Christ. In fact, speaking as someone who was once a non-Christian, I can say I would much rather have someone be honest with me about that, right, than try and trick me, right? If someone has me over to their home and it's just, oh man, they're so friendly and then all of a sudden they want to talk to me about the watchtower or they want to talk to me about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, I'm going to feel a little bit duped and I'm going to feel a little bit hurt, right? I wish you would have led with that because that might have influenced my decision whether I wanted to come be with you or not. There's nothing wrong with you inviting someone to your house for a Bible study or saying, I want to start a neighborhood prayer circle or something like that. And we're just going to invite people to come pray uh, in the name of Jesus. Hospitality creates space for the truth to be heard. As Christians met in their homes, the book of Acts says they continued in not just fellowship, not just breaking bread, they're not just having potlucks all the time, but they're also continuing in apostolic doctrine, right? They're they're reading their Old Testaments, and they're seeing, how does my Old Testament line up with what these apostles are teaching me? Is Jesus really the Christ? Well, yes. Oh, look. Look at the prophet Isaiah. Look at the book of Genesis. Look at Joshua. Yes, this Jesus really is the Christ. They're praying together. They're praying in the name of Jesus together regularly. Every day, they're engaging in prayer together. Hospitality is not just about being friendly. It's it's creating a space where the name of Jesus can be known by people. It's making room for the gospel. It's not the gospel. This is an important distinction. Your hospitality is not the gospel. Hospitality in and of itself is not evangelism but it is making room for that work it's creating space for that Uh, turn over with me if you would to romans chapter 10 book of romans is right after the book of acts romans chapter 10 and beginning in verse 13 hear what the bible says about how people come to be saved romans 10 13 says For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? Let's stop there. How does a person get saved? They call on the name of the Lord. But then verse 14, Paul asks some very important questions. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? In other words, what Paul is saying is, yes, the way a person is saved is by calling on the name of the Lord, but they can't call on him if they don't believe in him, and they can't believe in him if they've never heard of him, and they can't hear of him if no one tells them about him. And you can't tell someone about him unless you've been sent. Now, Jesus has sent all of us. He has sent all Christians into the world to do this work. You, Christian, being equipped by the Holy Spirit, you have been sent by Christ to the place you live, to your neighborhood and your house. You you didn't ultimately pick where you were going to live. right? God chose that for you. God had that predetermined for you. God has sent you to that place and that neighborhood with those neighbors, equipped you with his Holy Spirit so that you can tell others about the God who has saved you, that they might believe in him, Call on his name and be saved. Hospitality is not that, but it does make room for you to do that. It sets a stage for you. It creates a space for you to tell people about the God who has saved you, to tell people about Jesus. It it creates a space for you to show them Christian love, that they might know the Christ who loves you. Uh, in many senses. It's true. I know this is a slight modification of that old saying. Deal with it. People will not care what you know until they know that you care. I know that's normally said a little bit differently, but this is how it works with hospitality and evangelism. People will not care what you know about God until they know that you care about them. Hospitality is a way for you to show people I care about you. Not because of what you might give me, not because of what you're going to do for me, but because you also are made in the image and likeness of God, because you also are a fellow sinner in need of a Savior. I care about you, and I love you, and I want you to know the same Jesus who saved me. Once they know that you care, you can tell them what you know about God. That's why I believe Tim Keller, uh, who I don't agree with about everything... Uh, In fact, I didn't agree with him about a number of things, but uh, I trust he is with the Lord now. But uh, Tim Keller rightly said, I think, that, that hospitality is effectively the front porch of the gospel, and that before someone can come to know Jesus Christ, they will first experience the love of Christians in hospitality. Hospitality is the front porch, right? I grew up in a neighborhood where we didn't have front porches. Western suburbs of Chicago, it's like you had a little stoop and that was it. You didn't hang out on each other's front porches. Maybe you'd sit on the stoop, but you wouldn't. There were, there were none of these big front porches with swings and places to sit and, and places where you could relax together. We didn't have those. I know some of you grew up in places that did. The front porch is designed as sort of a sort of middle space between the outside world and the intimacy of the home. And the front porch is where you sort of go as the halfway point first. And maybe then you get invited into the home. Maybe you go on the front porch first for a while and then come into somebody's home eventually. But that's effectively what hospitality does. It it creates that front porch where someone who's not yet ready to come into the home of the gospel can come and experience something of the love of Christ. Something of the love of Jesus is known there. And that, that leads to my third and final point hospitality is effective for evangelism because it sets a stage where the gospel can be lived out. Right. Point two, it creates space for us to tell the truth in the gospel, but point three, it sets a stage for us to show it being lived out. Not just telling it, but living it out. And, and this is crucial. In, in so many ways, Christian, the thing that will win people to Christ is not your arguments, not your debates, not your intellectual ability to explain the Bible, it is the demonstration of God's power in your Christian life in your home. Uh, Jim Peterson, an evangelist, wrote a book called Evangelism as a Lifestyle, and in that book he tells a story about a man named Mario. Mario was a Brazilian man he was ministering to, a Marxist intellectual and activist, someone who was far from God and hostile to the Christian faith. But after four years of being in Jim Peterson's home for Bible studies, Mario the Marxist became a Christian. And later on after that point, Mario asked Jim, Jim, what do you think it was that made me want to become a Christian? And of course, Jim, thinking to himself, was going, well, it must have been all of our hours of intellectual discussion of the Bible and it was all the great points I made about how Jesus is the Christ and I proved it from the scriptures. And it was none of those things. Mario told him, do you remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together and I had soup with you and your family. As I observed you, your wife, your children and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I ever have a relationship like this with my fiance?'" And when I realized the answer was never, I concluded that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. It wasn't his arguments. It wasn't his debating. It wasn't his intellectual prowess. It was the first time Mario stepped in this home and saw how this Christian family loved each other and related to each other that he realized, I need to become a Christian. Now, as a way of encouragement, let me point out to you, he took four years to become a Christian after that point. You will not often have someone come into your house and right away want to embrace Christ. Maybe they will. Amen, if they do. But it's often the case that they will take time and it will take effort and a repeated uh, concentrated effort to keep bringing them into your home, to keep showing them the love of Jesus and they will embrace Christ for themselves. We need to both hear the gospel and we need to live it out. I don't remember where I originally heard this Uh, statement, but um, it is true that Christianity is more caught than taught. It is more about how people witness you living and picking up on that than what we explicitly teach them. In hospitality, we are creating room for the healing power of God to be given to fellow sinners. In many ways, I would say that nothing embodies the gospel like hospitality. I want you to think about the parable of the prodigal son, right? A parable that in many ways is a clear presentation of what the gospel is all about. What happens in the parable of the prodigal son? A father who has been wronged by his son welcomes him home, right? The prodigal son comes back expecting wrath and expecting judgment, and instead he finds, surprisingly, mercy and a welcome from his father. That's the gospel, right? The father receives you, his prodigal children, who have sinned against him and wronged him, and the father welcomes you home. He clothes you. He throws a feast in your honor. He he sets a place for you at his table at his own expense. You don't deserve any of it. He does it all for you, not because you're good enough, not because you have earned it, that's what the prodigal son wants to do, right? He wants to come back and say, Father, let me live as one of your hired servants. And at some point, maybe, I'll earn the right to be called your son again. And the father says, his father says No, we're not doing it that way. You're my son now. I'm receiving you now. And I will take the shame of your sin on myself. That's the gospel. And that's what hospitality is all about. It is, it is showing love to those who have not earned it. Who maybe don't deserve it. And it's about welcoming those who have wronged God and setting a place for them at his table. That's what the gospel's all about. That's what hospitality is all about. My friends, that is what God has done for us in Christ. He sets a place for us at his table. And now we are called in his spirit's power to go and set places at our tables for those who do not deserve it that we might share Christ with them, that we might preach the gospel to them until they know Jesus as we do. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are so good. Oh Lord, you are so faithful. You are so true. Lord, we thank you for your goodness expressed to us in this word. And Lord, we ask your blessing on the word as it has been preached. Father, we pray that uh, as we have heard the word proclaimed, that we would receive it into our hearts as seed into good soil. Lord, we pray that you would bear that fruit in us, the good fruit of hospitality, the good fruit of warm welcomes and the desire to develop those meaningful relationships with each other and with those who don't yet know Christ. Lord, we pray that in the future, as we faithfully, by your spirit, live out this calling and start practicing hospitality in this way. Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit in us. That we would see men and women, boys and girls, come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because they have first known us. And we have shared with them his love. Oh Lord, bless us to do this and be glorified in this. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.